0: Culture is doing its best to convince the world that there is nothing special about Jesus. Compounding this is the failure of most churches to grow their followers faith beyond a Sunday school understanding. As a result, the most important historical fact of the Christian faith is often the most misunderstood, the resurrection, and it's creating a powerless Christianity. And that's a quote. Hello and welcome to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and our very special guest on the show this time is Jeremiah Johnston, a New Testament scholar who is president of the Christian Thinkers Society and author and co-author of 12 books. Jeremiah serves as pastor of apologetics and cultural engagement at Prestonwood Baptist Church and Dean of Spiritual Development at Prestonwood Christian Academy. And his latest book from Bethany House in the States is Body of Proof, The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus and Why It Matters Today. And this is a fabulous book on the resurrection, folks. I've read a number of books on the resurrection and I like this very much. So Jeremiah joins me now from the States. Hi, Jeremiah.
1: Brent, I'm bringing you greetings from the nation of Texas, my brother. So I'm saying hello and it is an honor to be on your show. Thank you for having me.
0: It's an honor to have a, a proud Texan on the show,
1: sir. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right.
0: I've, I've only ever been to the States once and I got as far as San Francisco, but Texas is okay. on the list if I return.
1: You know, <laughs> I love it.
0: Yeah, why not? Why is the resurrection of uh, why is the resurrection of Jesus at the very center of Christian proclamation?
1: absolutely and this is for those of us that care about a christian worldview or a biblical worldview we have to understand that the center of that worldview the worldview hinges on the historical fact of jesus's physical bodily resurrection in fact all of christian theology christian ethics charity justice love care uh, the gospel, it all comes back to the cut and thrust of the fact of Jesus's physical bodily resurrection. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. That's why it's so important. And when we then study the text base, let us never forget our, our, Our faith is based in evidence, and our faith is, we are a text-based religion. There's 138,000 words in the Greek New Testament. There are 260 chapters, and there are 300 references to the resurrection. In fact, Brent, you probably know that there are more references to the resurrection than even heaven itself. The resurrection is central to the proclamation of the church, the gospel, but it also is the power that strengthens the church. It is the RPMs that go within the church as well. Uh, without it, Christianity falls, and we should really we should really go home. Uh, if if there is no such thing as a resurrection, that's why.
0: Yes, and it's a strange business. So we'll, if I can put it like that, and we'll come on to, to deal with that shortly. But I've got to ask you: Why are far too many of us so clumsy about our resurrection faith?
1: That that Brent is such a good question. We're clumsy because we're also clumsy with our Christian worldview, just to begin with. We could even cast that net much wider. I've seen lum- numbers as low as six percent. I've not done the quantitative research, but numbers as low as six percent of Christians who have a biblical worldview. And so when you look at biblical illiteracy, which is at an alarming rate, as well as biblical engagement, which is declining, you have a recipe, a cocktail, if you were, not just for heresy, but just for a lack of understanding of what true Christianity is. Furthermore, I was talking actually last night on the phone with Gary Habermas, who is, in my opinion, the world's leading scholar on the resurrection. He is writing a four-volume work that will be well over 5,000 pages on the resurrection of Jesus. And we were just discussing the fact that most Christians have not sat under quality teaching as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I'm not putting any pastor down, but we have seemed to have forgotten, and we need to be reminded that every sermon in the book of Acts focused on the resurrection we have somehow reduced the resurrection proclamation to just an Easter weekend or a funeral message, and yet when we look at the life of the New Testament, all of the sermons. Look at Paul in the Areopagus. The resurrection. The resurrection was constantly coming out of the mouths of disciples. I think at First Peter one three, we, it's my current memory verse. We praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with a living hope, not because of something we feel. He goes on to say, because of the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead.
0: Yeah. What does the Apostle Paul have to say about the resurrection?
1: Paul is our most important source for the resurrection of Jesus. And I would encourage our audience to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul opens up, and by the way, Paul gives us... Only, only Luke gives more content. Only, only Luke offers more writing. Paul gives us around 32,000 words of our Greek New Testament. And that's a pretty amazing amount. And yet at 1 Corinthians 15, he says, what I'm about to write to you, he uses the Greek word protois. It's of first importance. It's the word we get prototype from. There's nothing more important than what I'm about to say. And he goes on and he says, I want to remind you, that's fascinating, of the gospel that I preached to you, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures, and he was seen. And he goes on to give the appearance tradition. And so that would be the earliest witness that we have of Jesus's physical bodily resurrection. And then he takes that entire chapter to make it very clear this is a physical body. This is not an apparition. This is not a phantom. This is not ghost stories or superstitions. No, Paul was very clear. It is all physical. And what's fascinating about that is You know, Paul meets Jesus as the resurrection. All of the other apostles knew Jesus before the resurrection. It's fascinating when you think about the order in which Paul came to faith in Christ. And I take a lot of time in my book, Body of Proof, to explain what Paul was like before meeting the resurrected Christ. And then the dramatic change that leads Paul to pen this phenomenal verse in Galatians 3, verse 28, Um, that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, again, we see the resurrection is the key to equality. It's the key to ethics. It's the key to breaking down the sinful barriers of culture. And Paul is an incredible source. He's an essential source. And 1 Corinthians 15 is taking, uh, that passage is taken more serious by scholars um, than probably any other text in the New Testament
0: is the resurrection of jesus attested to outside the pages of our
1: bibles it is the resurrection of jesus is evidenced and attested it's and we see it also from the material culture and archaeology we see fallout from the resurrection of jesus all over uh, the roman empire in fact before we ever open the new testament and again, I do believe that the New Testament is a historical document. So I can appeal to it as a historian, not just on the grounds of faith, but looking through as a critical thinker, absolutely the New Testament is a historical document. But people always ask this what do we have outside the Bible? Uh, we can build 65 facts about the life of Jesus, which include his death, burial, and resurrection within a hundred years before we ever open the New Testament. And then when we go on and we see things like the, that we, what I already mentioned in archaeology, I spend at least two chapters in Body of Proof discussing the archaeology around the proclamation of Jesus's resurrection. And it's fascinating. It's persuasive. And it's quite intriguing. And it's a growing discipline. It's a growing science that continues to undergird the message of Jesus's resurrection
0: before we come on to talk about more of the the evidence because you do include a great deal of it in the book and it's it's fascinating um what's the case because you deal with this as well what's the case against the resurrection of jesus you write about the swoon theory and the wrong tomb theory and all these various theories that scholars have postulated over the the decades but yeah in a nutshell for someone listening to this who's trying to make up their own mind what is the case against the resurrection
1: you know and it's important that we trod this out what are these naturalistic theories i don't use that kind of terminology in the book but I want the book to be well-received by people with no prerequisites. But I do state, like an attorney would, what is the case against Jesus's resurrection? And I give a survey of the scholarship of especially the last 300 years of what individuals believed in place of a resurrection. And Brent, I'm not trying to, I, I you know, I was taught at Oxford to present the case of the opponent as if I was the opponent myself, so in not a pejorative way, and certainly just present it as they see it. And when you go through that chapter in my book, that section, and when you look at the misconception theories, when you look at the theories of swoon, the theories that Jesus really didn't die, uh, the theories then of deceit, Um, This has been a theory that's been around that the disciples were all just a bunch of deceivers. They knew Jesus had died, but they wanted to invent a religion. I stayed out this case because uh, so much of the rest of the book, my evidence, really speaks not only to those misconception and theories of deceit, um, but it also, I think, speaks to, even more importantly, the The zeitgeist of the day today, which is of scientism, that I don't believe things unless, you know, I can feel it and touch it, this activism of scientism around us. So I want to step further. Um, You know, there's also the mythicism category, which I I think I might have spent two or three pages on. I don't need to spend any more time on that. If we cannot believe that Jesus was a, let me, let me define myself. When I say mythicism, these would be individuals who say Jesus is a myth. He never actually existed. So I didn't take a lot of time uh, because there's very few scholars out there of any stripe of any belief that take that notion seriously and, Later on in the book, I make the point that it's fascinating to me, Brent, as a historian, that I have to appeal to Roman emperors to have the same level of attestation and documentary evidence that we have for Jesus of Nazareth. That is mind blowing. Now you might it might not be mind blowing to you because of you, but by you I mean to by our listeners uh, who's someone who's just picking up on Christianity. But it's mind blowing as a historian that I have to appeal to the Caesars of Rome for the same level of documentation and evidence and even extra biblical evidence, extra canonical evidence that we have for Jesus of Nazareth. It's it's fascinating. And it's the very reason that most archaeologists in Israel use six books for their archaeological digs. They use Josephus, Flavius Josephus, and then they use these other five, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts.
0: Yeah, and Jesus is mentioned in Josephus, and certainly in Tacitus, and does he get mentioned in Suetonius as well?
1: Suetonius, yeah, Celsus, Porphyry, yeah. all the I yeah. I want I I didn't get I got into it a little bit in the book. I mean, we can learn a lot just from all the critics of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, what I I call it New Testament confirmation extra I'm sorry external confirmations of New Testament history, which include. All of these objectors, these critics, these were not Christians writing history, and yet even they report it.
0: Yes, I mean, I, I mean, I studied uh, ancient history at, at university, and I think to get a mention in Tastus Suetonius and Josephus's pretty conclusive, really. The right (laughs) spot. Again,
1: and it reminds us the Bible is a historical document talking about real people, real places, real events. The scriptures exhibit verisimilitude. I love that term. They are very similar. They exhibit verisimilitude with the world, with the reality in which the world is in the first century. And we know that the gospels that come along later that are often called the apocryphal gospels that are extra canonical gospels They don't exhibit verisimilitude with Judea. They don't exhibit verisimilitude with Jewish burial traditions. Um, And that's why archaeologists don't use them.
0: I've got to ask you, what did Jesus himself teach and understand about resurrection?
1: (laughs) Jesus called it. I love this. You know, you've got to use when you write a popular book. And by that, I mean a book that's for wide consumption. You want to you want to be nice and tight with your arguments. And, you know, I'm often, you know, I have five children, Brent. So I, I get a listening ear of about 60. I have 60 seconds or less to get my point across to my five children and it's fascinating. Jesus in Mark eight thirty one and Mark nine thirty one and Mark ten thirty three and thirty four predicts his violent death and resurrection. Even more, so, I, I often love to joke, especially with you know the, the the modern audience, that if the church had a hashtag, it would be hashtag on the third day. It's fascinating to me that Jesus messianizes the Old Testament prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, and he messianizes and he applies that text to himself that very clearly states on the third day, we will rise again, but he he applies it to himself as the first fruits of the resurrection. And so, he called it. Um, it's important and fascinating also to look at those passages, and then in light of the words of institution, the disciples still didn't get it. And that's why we have communion. Jesus still says, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus refers to himself 69 times as Son of Man. When you study the Son of Man, Daniel 7 passage, you'll see very clearly that is Messiah who is sitting. He's given authority, power to sit next to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, uh, and there's so many other passages, but suffice it to say, Jesus knew what his messianic program was. Jesus was not dumb. He did not uh, have any kind of misunderstanding of what his mission is. That's why he goes to his home synagogue in Luke 4. He preaches this what I call his programmatic sermon. He cites Isaiah 61, one and two. He cites Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Again in Luke 7, when John the Baptist he is having doubts. What I love about that passage, he does not shame John the Baptist for his doubts. He does not shun him for his doubts. He sharpens him and he responds with evidence.
0: You write that, and I love this. I love this uh, sentence in the book. You write that if the disciples invented the story of Jesus' resurrection, they did a terrible job. What, what yeah. do you mean by that?
1: Here's the deal: if you, Brent, if you and I lived in the first century, and for some odd reason we wanted to invent a religion that would be widely accepted um, around all kinds of cultures and classes of people. And we started with the talking point that, hey, we're going to make up that somebody died and rose again. That would have fallen on dead ears, like immediately. That was a non-starter. No one in the Roman-speaking world, which was the empire, uh, believed that dead bodies came back to life. Um, And it's really interesting to read the Old Testament backwards through the lens of Christianity now, because there were very few Jews that expected a suffering Messiah. And so if we wanted to invent a religion, we would not start there. We would not include crucifixion. I I really don't think I talked about this enough in my book, how heinous and shameful um, crucifixion was to the Roman mindset. In fact, I checked this out as a historian The most detailed account that we have of what happened in Roman crucifixion comes from the, again, the historical documents of the Gospels. In fact, it is the longest. Uh, Martin Hangel points this out. The longest descriptive narrative of Roman crucifixion that we have from late antiquity is the New Testament gospels. In other words, we wouldn't know a lot about Roman crucifixion outside of those documents because it was such a heinous and shameful way to die. We wouldn't bring up resurrection, we wouldn't have them die on a Roman cross. Um, we'd probably give him a not more honorable death. And then, Brent, we certainly wouldn't have women be the first witnesses of this crazy event of resurrection. We probably wouldn't say that one of us occasionally spoke for Satan being Peter when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, when Peter didn't want him to go to the cross. We wouldn't have made up a story that, you know, not even Jesus's brothers believed in him during his life. John 7, 5, Mark 3, Mark 6. And so when you Start. I actually presented this at a conference in an academic setting first, but it turns out it's a fun way to teach the resurrection, When because I respect the mindset of everyone who's listening to this show all over the world. You're not going to invent a religion that, ha- that leaves itself open to these kinds of criticisms. Why did the gospel writers write the story this way? Where it leaves itself open, what you might call sober, even embarrassing narrative— because that's what actually happened. And my area, if you don't mind me, I, I really appreciate the interview with you, putting on my scholarly hat. I didn't go this deep in the popular book. When you study my expertise of second and third century gospels, They seem to be responding to the very criticisms that the canonical gospels leave themselves open to. Jesus is a giant, the cross talks. Jesus doesn't appear to women, he appears to Pontius Pilate, who declares him to be the son of God. And so, and then when we study uh, Celsus and Porphyry, those early critics of Christianity, they are criticizing the Christian movement for the very same reason that people do today and those that case against uh, the resurrection, the misconception, the deceit, um, even the mythicist categories. And so, you know, I take a lot of time to share that because I think it's a fun way to spread the message of the resurrection. I mean, let's just think for a minute, would you really make it up this way uh, if we lived? And you wouldn't, no. you
0: wouldn't. <clears throat> That's right. Uh, before we, uh, we're we coming to the end of our time, so I have so many more questions <laughs> I would have. But let's come on to talk about the resurrection accounts themselves because they've always fascinated me and I love them. Uh, but why is it so difficult to harmonize them?
1: Yes. There's such well, full,
0: if you look at the details, four radical, well, almost radically different accounts.
1: They are. They, they're they very different. Was there one angel? Were there two angels? Um, did this appearance happen in Galilee or was this in Jerusalem? There are varying accounts for 40 days. When you look at the resurrection narratives, John 20, 21, Luke 24, Mark 16, not even counting the full ending um uh Matthew 27:28 and then Acts 1 through the ascension we see these resurrection details emerge and when you study eyewitness testimony tradition there are varying there are varying differences in certain details the one thing they do all get right is they had experiences to quote EP Sanders now uh who was who did not describe himself as a conservative an Oxford scholar, they had this, the disciples had experiences of knowing they saw Jesus physically resurrected. Now he doesn't go on to describe how he interprets that, but they certainly did. When you look at eyewitness testimony tradition, there are going to be variables in the details I'm not concerned that they don't all have an airtight harmonization because, A, I have five children that tell me five different stories of the same event. So just putting on my dad hat, I'll never get to the truth of what happened when mom and I were out of town certain times. But I'll get a kernel of it. I have the, uh, the big idea I do have. So I wouldn't let that bother me. In fact, um, if I was a defense attorney, again, I would almost think it was a conspiracy if every detail was airtight and certain. History's not written that way, by the way. If we had time to get into historiography, Brent history can be you know it, it some of these details I mean was it was it two was it five generals of the Battle of Franklin in the Civil War or was it four who died I mean we we have to check the sources but we know it was the bloodiest five hours of the Civil War so again um the Bible does not leave its it does the Bible is not trying to trick anyone by having this airtight harmonization and when you know a little bit more about historical documents I'm not saying you personally I'm saying those that are listening to us you See that the scriptures are incredible sources.
0: Yes, and I, I've always suspected they're written deliberately that way. I mean, we we stay right outside the tomb with Matthew. We just see the um, the angel, mm-hmm. uh, the angel on the tomb. The woman never gets in. We don't even we don't get into the tomb physically as readers uh, right. until, until the Gospel of Mark, and then we meet a young man sitting at the right side, uh, which is interesting. And then in Luke, we meet two. Men, uh, it's literally what it says, isn't it? Right. It's not until John that we get what I suspect is probably the full account, and, and we get right. right inside the tomb. We run into the tomb with John, and then we see the two angels. So,
1: And um, then it's fascinating. Yeah. Paul doesn't include the women in his appearance tradition in First Corinthians 15, which is also fascinating. Why didn't Paul include the women when he goes and specifically mentions the appearance tradition and the empty tomb tradition?
0: Yeah. No, it's. I'm sure. I'm convinced they're they're written that way for literary reasons, as much as anything else. Um, do we, in fact, know where Jesus was buried?
1: You know what? I'm pastoral the way I answer this because I love the land of Israel. I love the garden tomb. I have about 2,600 words towards the end of my book that there's some very recent archaeology where the tomb that the edicule, which is like a little house inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, was opened. They got down to the very marble slab from the first century. And they verified that all of it is first century. It's right place. It's right time. To our modern idea, we think, man, is it weird that the tomb could be 150 to 200 feet away from the crucifixion site? Oddly, no. Um, This was a new tomb. Jesus is buried properly, not honorably. Um, And it's fascinating when you think it was only open for 60 hours, but National Geographic, not a Christian source was there to cover it. So you can find their photos and you can see what all of the historians and archaeologists saw. We found exactly what we would expect to find uh, first century limestone burial crypt.
0: Mm. And where is the body? As we close yeah. that's the question, isn't it? We've been looking for two thousand years. They still I mean, I love detective stories and I, yes. I I find amazingly God has provided us, I think, with the greatest mystery of all in the resurrection, because uh where is the body?
1: Right. Same thing they were asking in Matthew. And we know he's risen, he's physical. This is the this is the beauty that we can talk about our loved ones in the present tense who have died in the Lord. Um, I don't know if I included it in the book or not, but I was looking the other day at the word quimeterion in Greek, cemetery. The early Christian movement, they have to invent a new term for da- burial. Uh, it wasn't a mausoleum. It wasn't a uh, sepulcher or a monumentum. It was dormitories, sleeping rooms, because quimao in Greek, literally uh, Christians who've died, they're not dead. They're just sleeping, waiting for the resurrection. And I, I, I find that amazing, then that believers even want to be buried in the same areas to Together, so strong is the fellowship. So we see the very real world aspects of the resurrection from early on. Yes.
0: Oh, fascinating. We could talk for hours. Jeremiah Johnston, uh, Pastor of Apologetics and Cultural Engagement at Prestonwood Baptist Church and Dean of Spiritual Development at Prestonwood Christian Academy. And the book from Bethany House is called Body of Proof, The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus and Why It Matters Today. Jeremiah, thank you so much. And thank you for putting up with me at the tail end of uh, of a summer cold or flu or something. Uh, it's working its way out of my voice and I'm... Just, struggling a bit, but however, it was a wonderful interview. And thank you so much for your time.
1: Brett, thank you for having me.
0: And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Jeremiah, thank you so much. Blessings. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website,
1: godstorypodcast.com.